He's tried to make three or four turns and <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay. Oh goodness. Well, today we're going to look at Job. Some of you, uh, I've, I've heard people comment that Job is their favorite book. I, I'm not among those people. I usually get up here and tell you I'm reading one of my favorite scriptures, not today. Uh, Job is quite challenging. Uh, Job raises a lot of questions, and sometimes all the questions are not answered. We're going to read the final portion, or the beginning of when uh, the Lord appears to Job and begins to speak to him. Let's be standing, please, as we read chapter 38, the book of Job, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together And the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. And I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. May God bless the reading of his word. Gerald Mann is a preacher in Austin, and he tells the story about one day he was on a TV program, and it was one of those programs where people could call in with questions about the Bible. And so he got one question and soon discovered he was talking to a little nine-year-old girl named Sarah. And in a small, quivering voice, Sarah asked this question. Why does God let grown-ups kill kids? They told me in Sunday school that God would protect me, but God did not protect my cousin Suzanne. She was only seven years old, and someone killed her. Boom. The question. Gerald said he immediately started scrambling, how do I explain this to a nine-year-old? And then he remembered How did he explain it to himself? It's the ultimate question. It's the question probably that is asked most often of God. Why? Why do bad things happen to innocent children? Why do terrible things happen to at least seemingly good people? All theology attempts to answer that question. Every religion in the world tries to address that question question. Why God either won't or can't protect the innocent? Well, I'm not going to pretend that in the next few moments I'm going to give you the definitive answer to that question. In fact, some of the worst theology I've ever heard has been in response to that question. I know I've shared this with you before, but it's just a story that is so ingrained on my soul and and haunts me. It happened in East Texas. There was a young state trooper 
DPS officer that was killed in the line of duty. And another DPS officer was sent to the house of that young man to tell his young wife, who had a young baby still in arms, that her husband wouldn't be coming home. And on the way, he stopped and picked up a preacher there in town that he knew knew the couple and asked to go along with him to help do this task. And so they went and they sat down and they began talking and the trooper told the news. And of course, the woman received it like any wife who loved her husband would receive such news. And the baby had woke up and she was holding the baby and the baby was crying and she was crying. And she began to ask the question of why. And the preacher offered an explanation that God needed him in heaven more than she needed him on earth. Have you heard that one before? How satisfying do you think that answer was? And the woman replied that if God would take her husband like that when she needed him so badly, then she didn't want to have anything to do with God anymore. I've heard some terrible answers to this question. So I'm really not going to propose any simple stock answers today. What I want to do is to address it by making two observations and before we leave offering a couple of words of hope. Observation number one, it is a fair question to ask. It is fair game to ask this question. Sometimes when we get in the church building where we're all supposed to believe and we're all supposed to get in line and march along in the same beat of the same drummer, we sometimes think, well, we can't ask questions like that. Oh, yes, we can. We can ask this question. Many people in Scripture, in God's holy word, the inspired Bible, asked this very question. One of them was David himself. David wrote many psalms that this question is addressed in. For example, Psalm 22, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you helping me? Why am I having to groan so much? I cry by day, you don't answer, and I cry by night, and you don't find re- I don't find rest. And he goes on to say that people are making fun of me because I believe in a God that lets things like this happen. He says, you know, I've heard stories about you, about you helping people that were in trouble, and now you're not doing it. I just don't get it. Do you know who picked up these same words and used them later on? A man named Jesus, as he hung on the cross, and he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in doing so, embraced really that whole psalm and all of its message. John Claypool, a minister and an author, lost a daughter who was only 11 to leukemia. And another preacher friend of his, Carlisle Marney. Carlisle Marney is one of my faith heroes. I tell you, anytime I can find something written by or some kind of recording by Carlisle Marney, I, I, I just grab it and listen to it because... He certainly is a man of God or was a man of God. But Carlisle Marney wrote Claypool a note at the death of his 11-year-old daughter. And this is what he said. He said, John, I do not understand why leukemia kills children, but I do know that God has a lot to account for someday. Someone challenged him about that. He said, that doesn't sound very faithful to say that God has a lot of explaining to do. And Marnie replied, he said, you know, he said, if I'm a person and God is a person, then such questions are in order, and we need to talk about this. 
So, observation number one when it comes to asking questions about suffering and why such bad things happen in this world. Observation number one is it's a fair question. It's a question that's in bounds. You can ask that question. Observation number two is I honestly don't have an answer. I don't know. You know, I've got the stock answers that I've read and things I've been taught and just like that preacher shared with that young woman. But you push those and they just don't hold up. There just comes to a point where there is not an answer. In fact, that's what the whole book of Job is about. If you read the whole book of Job, and good luck with that, because it's hard to hang in there. You've got to really be plowing along to stay through the whole book of Job. But it begins with the introduction and sets up a scene where Job is about to go through this suffering. And then for 35 chapters... Job and his friends banter around the ideas of trying to explain why Job is having so many problems in his life. And the four friends have the stock easy answers, the things that people always say, you know, about why evil comes into your life. But Job, on the other hand, is saying, but those don't apply. They're just not the what, that's not what's happening. They're just not true. And he begs and pleads with God to give him the answer to this question that is haunting him And that haunts us still today. Why? Why do these things happen? Finally, in verse 38, God shows up in a storm and speaks to Job. The only problem is, we read the first 11 verses, he never answers the question. He doesn't really give Job the answer. What he says is, and you heard him, he says, Where were you when I did all these things? If you think you can understand all of this stuff, then then you should know where you were and you should understand how I did all these things. In other words, what he's basically saying to Job is that there's really too much of a gap between me and you for me to explain myself to you. That there's no way that I can explain all of these things that are going on. And so that's really... The answer that the Bible has is that we're never going to get it. In this life, we will never understand why evil comes into the lives and causes suffering of so many people who don't seem to deserve it. So, if God's ways are not our ways and his ways lie outside the ability to comprehend, the truth is, I'm going to make a... I don't, I'm saying it takes any courage to make this because y- y'all aren't going to throw anything at me, I don't think. But I think if we're honest, we have to admit that we can choose that since we cannot understand why God would let these things happen, we can choose not to believe in God. That is a valid choice to make. And I know a lot of people that have made that choice. Probably this is the the primary reason the people that I've talked to that don't believe in God, the number one reason is that there's just too much bad in the world and God wouldn't allow it, therefore I don't believe in God. But before you make that choice, before you choose not to believe in a God that allows such a world to exist, let me offer you at least a couple of words of hope. 
Number one, the witness of Scripture and the witness of believers throughout history is not that God can be explained and understood, but rather that God can be encountered and experienced. The very people that believed in God were the people that struggled with trying to understand him and finally reached a point where they said, we can't, we just don't understand it. However, in that struggle with him, they came to experience his presence in their lives. And they said, I believe in God, not because I understand him, but I believe in God because I have experienced him. Because there is no way to explain how I got through this except by the strength of God. There is no way to explain how I was able to put one foot in front of another other than there was a hand holding mine. Remember David who complained about God letting him down? Well, that's not all David said about God. For example, in Psalm chapter, or Psalm, ooh, I made that mistake. I told people never to make it. Psalms don't have chapters, they have Psalms, okay? In Psalm 9, <laughs> David says this. He says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He is a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, will be there for them. You will not forsake them. He doesn't say that whenever we're in trouble and when we're suffering, God is going to show up and explain why. He just says he'll show up and he'll be there for you and be there with you. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Isaiah, a man who also suffered, said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him, and he will be near. Jeremiah. Jeremiah went through sufferings. He was there when Jerusalem was destroyed. He was there when his neighbors were killed. He was there whenever he, his house was torn down and burned down. And what does he do? Let's let him tell us in Lamentations chapter 3. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness. Now, homelessness is real to him. He doesn't have a place to go back to. It's been leveled. There's no home, no house for Jeremiah. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. Now, those are expressions we don't use anymore, but bitter. They're just so bitter, they, he just can't stand it. He says, my soul continually thinks of it. Have you ever been through things in, in your life where that's all you can think of? You, you, know, you just can't think of anything else. You can't see anything good because of what's going on. He says, my soul continually thinks of it. My soul is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Does anyone know what this verse is leading to? We just sang it, didn't we? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. The Lord is good to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly, and he will experience the salvation of the Lord. The answer will never come as to why. 
And if we must have a God who answers that question, then we will not have a God. But what God offers is his presence to be with us. This is what happened for Job. If we look back at Job, after God had talked to him and really didn't answer his question, Job, on the other hand, is greatly relieved and is greatly excited and encouraged because of the presence of God. If we look at the very last chapter of Job, Job 42, after God has got through talking, he says, you know, I'd heard of you. And the way he says it is, but now my eyes have seen you. What it's really saying is, now I've experienced you. And now I know you're here. And that's what it takes, is to simply know that he's here. Word of hope number two. We have an advantage over Job. We have an advantage over David. We have an advantage over Isaiah and Jeremiah. Because we have what God or what what the Apostle Paul called the mystery that God had hidden through the ages and has now been revealed to us. And that mystery has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is a day coming, we believe, when all that is crooked will be made straight and all that is dark will be made bright. And the mystery is that has been revealed is that that is what the cross of Christ is all about. You see, as believers in Christ, we still can't answer the question. And I can't even tell you all that the cross of Christ means But I can tell you this, that in the cross of Christ, God took ownership, responsibility, and yes, even blame and punishment for all that has gone wrong in this world. That in the cross, as Jesus hung upon that cross, God himself hung upon that cross. He embraced all the suffering that had happened and would happen. And in the resurrection... He gave a promise that someday it will be made right. And that's what we're called to hope for. That's what we're called to walk in. That's what the Bible calls the kingdom of heaven entering into this world. Is that bright hope that while we can never understand why there is suffering now, we do know that because of the cross of Christ and because of the resurrection and the the conquering of death through Jesus that one day it'll all be made right. We walk by faith and not by sight. And what we see can be greatly disturbing. What we believe that God is ultimately going to make it right. So what we do for now, I choose to believe, I choose to hope. I choose to live in the kingdom of heaven because the alternatives are dark indeed. I choose to renounce what evil I find in myself because I don't want to be the cause of my own suffering and I don't want to cause suffering in anyone else's life either. I choose to bring the light of God to the best of my ability into situations where people are suffering injustice And to whatever extent I understand justice, I want to try to bring justice into their lives. This is the witness of God's people throughout history. It's the journey they've always been on, is walking toward him and walking toward that time when all will be set right 
and light overcomes the darkness. The invitation is to come and to join them and to walk with them. And where we find those injustices and where we find suffering, we do all that we can through the help of God to bring light and to bring healing. But our eye is always on the horizon, knowing that one day the resurrection of Jesus, that promise, will come true for us all. That is our hope. That's our faith. Let's stand and sing.